Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Mass shootings and gun violence seem to have become a part of life in the United States. So far this year, there have been over 360 mass shootings reported and some 25,000 people who've died due to any form of gun violence, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Gun purchases are also soaring, despite Americans already owning more guns than their population. Following a series of shootings this summer, U.S. President Joe Biden signed into law of uh, what some call one of the most significant gun control bills over the past 30 years, but others say is simply not enough. How to understand the root causes around gun control in America? What more has to be done? Welcome to a special series focusing on America's three big society woes. Joining me today from Williamsburg, Virginia, is Dr. Robert Spitzer, Distinguished Service Professor and Emeritus from Political Science Department at the State University of New York College of, at Cortland. From Beijing, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, and from Philadelphia, Brandon Blackburn Dwyer, President of the consulting firm Grasshopper Strategies. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Dr. Spitzer, let me go first to you. As we know, so far this year, the U.S. has recorded over 25,000 deaths of uh, gun violence. That's including deaths of all causes and uh, over 350 mass shootings. Over 3,000 children and teenagers have been killed all injured as a result of gun violence. What explains the quickly worsening situation on gun violence in the United States. Is there a gap between these numbers and uh, people's experience when living there? Well, there are several factors that explain this rise in gun violence in America. The backdrop to this is the fact that for about almost the last 30 years, crime in every category, including violent crime and gun crime, has been gradually declining. But in the last few years, it started to increase. And that happened partly around the pandemic period. Uh, even though people were not out on the streets, people were home more often. There was a rise in domestic violence, a rise in economic insecurity, in fear. There have been uh, demonstrations around the country in the last few years, and those have been uh, hyped in a way to scare people to some degree. And we have seen, as you're suggesting, a, a large number of Americans going out and buying guns and increasing the total number of guns. And of course, you can't have gun violence without firearms. And we're a nation that owns a great many firearms anyway. But this recent increase in firearm uh, circulation in the country has predictably led to the uh, the count that you just described of gun suicides, gun homicides, and then accidental deaths from guns. And we've also seen an increase in mass shootings. And as terrible as they are, it's important to point out that mass shootings represent a very small proportion of all gun uh, deaths every year, about 1%. It's a serious problem, and there's much more that can be done. And Congress and the president did take a step to address this problem last month.
Let's take a look at uh, the step that the Congress took. Victor, um, if you agree with Dr. Spitzer's uh, laying out of the background of the context of the situation, and also about this bill, uh, the bill expands background checks on people between ages of 18 and 21 seeking to buy a gun. It includes incentives for states to pass so-called red flag laws that allow groups to petition courts to remove weapons from people deemed a threat to themselves or others. It also expands an existing law that prevents people convicted of domestic abuse from owning a gun to include dating partners rather than just spouses or former spouses. Do you think these will significantly reduce gun violence effectively? Well, first of all, this bill to expand uh, uh, background checks uh, for uh, gun buyers is a necessary step, but it is definitely not sufficient. Uh, at best, I'm afraid, it is whitewashing the root causes of the gun violence in the United States. I think the United States really stands out not only among developed countries, but throughout the world in terms of the gun violence. And even up to today, the United States uh, government, agencies, federal government, state governments, you name it, still refuse to address the fundamental causes of the gun violence, which has resulted in so many lives being taken away in the United States. In a sense, the worst enemy of the United States do not exist outside of the United States. They exist inside so the United what States. what do you think are or is the biggest root cause? Well, well, I think if we go back all the way to 1791, when the Second Amendment was uh, enacted, uh, we need to ask one fundamental question. At that time, who could really own a gun? It's not the African-Americans, uh, they were enslaved, and uh, they were not uh, American Indians, they were the enemies to be wiped out, and eventually genocide was committed to eliminate the American Indians. They probably were not even uh, females because the females in the United States at that time did not have guns. So you are talking about a small group of white male who owned guns at that time. And they owned guns for what purposes? They owned guns to kill the American Indians and enslave the Afro-Americans and then to deprive the American ladies of their political rights. This is the real root cause of the gun violence in the United States. And I'm very sorry that for more than 200 years, this origin of the gun violence in the United States has not been fully addressed. And the legacy is spreading out like wildfire because right now, more people can own guns in the United States. And those who commit gun violence with guns, they own or they don't own, even include teenagers or even younger people. So you are talking about a country owning guns, committing violence, taking away people's lives, and you are talking about really protecting the human rights of the American people without life or with your life to be wantonly taken away. What are the human rights you are talking about? Brendan, I want to get your reaction on what Victor just said, addressing, addressing the, what he believes is the biggest root cause, uh, white supremacy or racism, uh, and then this uh, old you know, fundamental idea spreading in the society with you know, uh, widespread gun ownership leading to the problem we're seeing now. The problem with 
the discussion about guns in America, I think, is that it's a bit of a Rorschach test. No matter what you want to see in this problem, you can find an argument to say that this is the root cause. Is it white supremacy based on gun ownership being predominantly white for 150 to 180 years in American history? Potentially. Is that same element of ownership and wealth inequality and that the legacy uh, of racism and civil rights in America? Is that part of the reason we see you know, violence rising in the United States as wealth inequalities on the rise? Probably. Is it about mental health? Is it about the youth of America? Is it about video games like we were yelling about in the 80s and 90s? This issue is so complex that it is yes to all of those and no to all of those at the same time. Largely, when we're talking about gun violence, we need to really think about what context are we saying it from? Are we talking about the rise of violent crime in the United States, the, 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 the reversal of 30 years of a decline in violent crime in the United States that has seemingly come wildly shocking to most policymakers in the last three to five years in America, fueled in part by the, by the COVID lockdown? That's a big change. But that's where we see a lot of violent crime. We need to figure out how to solve that. Mass shooting, which my colleague already pointed out, is less than 1% of the problem. That's sort of its own unique problem, right? Those mass shootings aren't being driven by wealth inequality. They're being driven by fringe ideas and people with mental health issues and uh, you know very sort of isolated extreme elements that it's very hard to make a blanket rule to stop that because a blanket rule to stop 1% of a problem isn't going to address the other 99% by definition, right? So if you're stopping 1%, you're not stopping the other 99%. So when we're talking about guns in America, it's a complex, multifaceted problem that the Safer Communities Act addressed pieces of it. And it's a breakthrough that the American government was able to address pieces of this problem since it's been 30 years since we've had any major legislation addressing any part of guns in America. But it's by far not enough. It's not target enough. And it's only going to go after certain elements of a wildly complex problem. Dr. Spitzer, uh, while signing the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act into law, Biden said that while this bill doesn't do everything I want, it does include actions I've long called for that are going to save lives. It's been called, as uh, our guests have pointed out, the biggest breakthrough in 30 years. But two days before the bill, the Supreme Court of the United States also nullified uh, New York law, which prohibited the carrying of firearms outside of the home. Some have called this Congress versus court. How much is the effect of the bill being compromised by such court rulings, if at all, in your eyes? Well, th there is reason to believe that the Supreme Court, in a sharp, uh, uh, going in an opposite direction of what most of the country wants to see and what Congress and the president recently signed off on, uh, the Supreme Court said in this recent decision that the Second Amendment, for the first time in history, now gives citizens a right to carry guns with them for personal protection outside of the home. And by the way, the Second Amendment only was defined as a personal right since 2008. For 200 years, the Second Amendment was defined in the way it was written. That is to say, it protected the right of states to form well-regulated militias in order for states to protect themselves from manifold uh, threats from the British, the French, from Native Americans, to be sure, um, because that was our primary military point of view. What, and uh, other point related about this, uh, there were thousands of gun laws early in American history. 
in fact, in our, from my own research, from our, in our first 300 years, in many respects, guns were more heavily regulated than in the last 30 years in our country. And we've seen uh, most recently the Supreme Court uh, going in the opposite direction by widening the definition of gun rights. And that does indeed open the door to invite new legal challenges to gun laws, including perhaps this new federal law that have been upheld in the past in legal challenges, but that may now find themselves being struck down by this new uh, widening of gun rights. And I think it is a, it is a problem that the court has issued a decision of this nature and for a lot of reasons. Um, Victor, I do have this question here. Um, I mean, the, the Constitution was drafted hundreds of years ago, but uh, the situation keeps changing, right? Um, new circumstances, ec economy is different, society is different, the definition of rights different, challenges are different. Uh, how come the uh, American system has not been able to address the changing challenges whereas, and always use that, uh, you know, that piece of stone set many, many decades ago to guide how you behave today? Well, first of all, I think uh, the constitutional uh, grant of right to uh, citizens to own guns uh, was uh, based on the wrong premise to start with back in the uh, 19th century and now we are in the 21st century and the world we are living in is completely different. The United States is also very very different compared with more than 200 years ago. And talking about the guns, you are not only talking about the shotguns, you are talking about automatic rifles which are more lethal than anything that the constitutional uh, drafters uh, could have imagined more than 200 years ago. And I think there are lots of vested interests in the United States who want to mm. protect their own provincial interests rather than to give uh, consideration to the overall interests of the whole nation okay. in the United States. Right. And as a result, innocent people lose their life. Yeah. Dr. Spitzer, really briefly, please, what did you wanted to add? Well, I was just going to make the point that the uh, historically the Constitution has been adapted to changing circumstances, but there is a prevailing conservative philosophy that has a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court that argues for originalism, which to me is a bankrupt concept that says indeed that you need to look back 200 years to decide how to solve contemporary problems, and it is an utterly inadequate uh, way to address contemporary All right. problems. So sorry, we have to leave it there. Time is uh, extremely limited. Many thanks, Dr. Robert Spitzer from University of New York College at Cortland, Victor Gao from Sutro University, and Brendan Blackman-Dwyer from Grasshopper Strategies. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, Indonesian President Joko Widodo will be the first foreign state leader to visit China since the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. How are the two countries cooperating, and uh, what exciting projects are ahead? Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. 
Indonesian President Joko Widodo is scheduled to visit China this week, making him the first foreign head of state to visit the country after the Beijing Winter Olympic Games. China is also Widodo's first stop on his first trip to East Asia since the COVID-19 pandemic began. What inspired the trip and what's the significance of China-Indonesia ties in the region? How are Belt and Road Initiative projects strengthening cooperation. Earlier, I talked to Yusuf Wadandi, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees at the Indonesia Center for Strategic and International Studies Foundation from Jakarta. Mr. Wadandi, thank you very much for joining us. On July the 11th, Indonesian President Yoko Widodo met with visiting Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and both sides mentioned the construction of the Jakarta-Bandung High-Speed Railway, which is a landmark Belt and Road Initiative project. So what's the significance of that railway project, and how is the construction progressing, according to your knowledge? For us, of course, the establishment of such a railway system is a new one and, and a modernizing, uh, actually, Indonesia by, uh, by a jump. And that's very important. But also, of course, this is uh, the project that is so important for both of us, China and Indonesia. And that's why we would like to participate in the BRI projects, as you know. And this is the first one. Unfortunately, I have to admit, there was some delay basically because of the problems of the piece of land. Piece of land, not only the ownership that was at the beginning, but also, you know, that the piece of land is difficult uh, to, because of the volcanoes and etc., to really be on the safe side, having that ready. So, but we are looking forward that, as planned, that we have to have it ready within the next two years. So we hope that we can really have it, you know, and be part of it in the BRI project. According to a poll released by an Australian think tank, only 43% of Indonesians say they felt China's growth was good for Indonesia, down from 54% in 2011. Do you think the poll reflects the real public opinions in the country. Has there been a decline in the favorability uh, in the eyes of uh, Indonesians of China? I don't, I don't think so from the Indonesian side. This is an Australian poll. And you know polls. Polls is just a moment of time that you take it and maybe, maybe fail it for that moment. But then it, 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 it can have a lot of questions as well. So I don't want to really go in depth to that, you know, because we are doing many polls ourselves for our domestic politics too. And, and, and you always have to take a, a lot of grain of salt to, to see the results. That is one. And mind you, uh, we, we, we know Australia itself, of course, is a schizophrenic nation. In the sense, of, you know, their mind is in, in New York or Washington, D.C., their heart is in London, but their stomach is in Asia. And they must be realizing that. I think, I hope, earlier than later, that economic part is so important and more important than anything else in our part of the world.
In May, you met with uh, the Chinese ambassador to Indonesia, Liu Kang, and uh, yeah. you agreed to strengthen cooperation between think tanks of the two countries in poverty reduction and education, among other things, of course. But these are the uh, few areas that have been given right. special spotlight. Uh, why these areas, and uh, uh, what are your takeaways from China's poverty alleviation efforts? Well, as a matter of fact, education is, of course, very important and we have to know more about china there's no doubt about that and we have not done our part to know china better than actually has to be you know as a partner of china that is number one but on the faculty affiliation we are struck by how much china has done and so consistent i mean, i think it already started under under uh, 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 former leaders, of course, including, you know, from the beginning, uh, 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 Mao Zedong, always alleviating poverty is an important program of China. But, of course, President Xi in the last 10 years has done tremendously. And, and if we, I look at you know, what he has done, he has visited all this region that are going through this process and this program he went there in the last 10 years at least 50 times to see himself what has been done. He has spent so much money also and investment in really getting it moving. He has spent so many people involved, the party cadre, but also the common people, how to participate in this alleviation. And we are actually... You have to be proud of it, and we would like to emulate that. But mind you, uh, we are not uh, on that part. So, so we have partly and maybe slowly to emulate what is possible. But we have to try, and we are doing some work. Hopefully, in the near future, with Fudan University on this issue. Oh, these are very nice, nice words, very kind words. Thank you very much for such high remarks. Um, but the world is in a very difficult situation uh, for obvious reasons. There are a lot of uh, competition, rivalry going on, and uh, uh, especially concerning China. You know, the competition sure. that the United States sees with China and it in, yeah. insists on in competing with China. Um, so. What is your understanding of what has happened? What has gone wrong? That something has gone wrong, obviously, that we are uh, seeing what we're seeing today. And what do people need to understand if we are to come back to the more important things the world's need, especially the developing world need, peace, development, stability, prosperity, jobs, so on and so forth? Yes, sir. Well, uh, two things. One is domestic. Now, of course, there is a domestic part in it, you know, that countries themselves has to take care of their own societies. And, 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 and that has been lacking sometimes. And especially, can you, you can see that in the developed part, including the United States. They have to get the right together domestically. We cannot do very much about it. But also internationally. And there is a lack of cooperation now. Multilateralism is the motto of President Xi, and we have to go after that. We must implement that. And that has been shown also in the foreign ministers meeting of the G20 in Bali about a week ago. That, that multilateralism is lacking, 
we don't pay attention anymore to the others. We would like just to concentrate on ourselves. And then it's not going to help because then nobody can do it. And, and, and that, I think, is an awareness that we have to create. And then reform institutions that is already out of date. And third is leadership, which is lacking because of the deficient among us, but also because, well, you know, with due respect to the United States, of which I have studied quite a lot, you know, it, it, it is bare leadership that is lacking, partly, you know, and, and I'm much more, I mean, I mean, now doing studies on China instead, because of the fact that you have done a better job, and we have to follow that. In May, U.S. President Joe Biden hosted uh, ASEAN leaders for a special summit and senior U.S. officials visited Southeast Asian yes. nations several times. And some are yes. saying that the U.S. is uh, compelling ASEAN countries to choose sides. Do you feel, I mean, do um, Indonesian or um, ASEAN countries feel the pressure from Washington to choose sides? And uh, is there a way to balance these two relationships? Well, uh, as you know, we, uh, we have an, this is an old, actually historical uh, fact that our leaders, you know, in, in the revolution has already put down these principles of non-alignment and that we must not take sides because there is no uh, reason we should do that. We could do with both of them or with many of them, you know, and, and that is the, 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 the motto and the belief and the practice that we are trying to do. So in our part of the world, as you know, we are trying to China to establish this, this law of the sea convention, uh, you know, uh, acceptance through our, you know, bilateral ASEAN China meetings and work. I, I, we were very much involved in that in the South China Sea. And, and that is one example, you know, uh, where we should do and uh, do our part and, 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 and can do that without doubts that we are going to hurt the United States or not. That, that is our problem and not theirs problem, actually, according to us. Finally, later this year, the Communist Party of China will convene its 20th National Congress in Beijing. Uh, yeah. How do you look forward to the meeting? What are your expectations of the potential impact this meeting is going to have on China and, of course, the region? As, as you know, we, we hope that what happened in China and the good things that China has done will be emulated by us in the future. We can become part of that and we're trying to do that. And therefore, you know, what the, 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 the CPC's, you know, Congress and, and the future of CPC and the role of CPC that is, she is playing is, is critical to China and to us too. We cannot not only not escape, but we have to be more uh, participating, according to me, to make this as a whole, holy cooperation, especially of East Asian countries but also of the rest of the world. Thank you so much, Mr. Yusuf Wanandi, Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees of CSIS Foundation. It's a great pleasure to have talked to you. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.